Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. That laptop might as well be on the moon. What about a magnet? What magnet? What about it? I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the Nerdette Podcast. Greta. What? New doctor. Yes, Trisha, we'll get there. But first, NPR's Audie Cornish nerds out with us. Plus, an orange is the new black inspired cocktail. Toilet hooch? Are we giving listeners recipe for toilet <laughs> hooch? I was hoping for bathtub gin. We'll have to wait and see. We'll hear from the A students who did their Breaking Bad homework from last week. And talk about what the heck is going on with Dexter. Why is this show still happening? Okay, Trisha, it's nerd confession time. Go on. I try really hard to never let my fangirling impede my journalistic objectivity. Of course not. You are fair and balanced and whatnot. Right. But last week, I did an interview with someone who I cannot deny I am an enormous fan of. Ah, yes. Is it the same person who is now the voice on your answering machine? Yes. G-R-E-T-A. We cannot hold this against you. Carl Castle is on my list of exceptions, too. Wait, which list of exceptions? The list of people who we, as journalism nerds, cannot help but be unabashed fans of. Ooh, that list. Yes. Wait, what list were you talking about? Never mind, Trisha. Don't worry about (laughs) it. So we talked to Audie Cornish last week. She's the super hip co-host of NPR's All Things Considered, and she's also one of our favorites on Twitter. Audie says Twitter is like feeding the Tamagotchi pet she never wanted. She knows she's got to feed the beast, but she didn't really want it in the first place. This is something I can totally relate to. I'd like to think I'm getting better at it, but I may still kind of suck at the Twitters. Audie may not be super into Twitter, but she is really good at it. We asked about one of our favorite tweets ever, where she mentions the ultimate nerd dilemma. When you go to a 3D movie and you have to wear the 3D glasses on top of your regular seeing eye glasses. Yeah, nothing nerdier than glasses on glasses. Because I've seen so many of these movies for work. That's the funny thing. Like a lot of these are movies that I would see and I'm excited to see them, but I'm actually also seeing them because I'm going to do an interview. Uh, so I bring a notebook and a pen, right? Because you don't want them to get you don't want to get kicked out of the theater with your cell phone or whatever. And I'm like scribbling in the dark with glasses on glasses. It is the most loser looking thing ever. No, it's beautiful. This is what we're celebrating here. Oh, okay. So one thing we wanted to ask you is if you've always taken pride in your nerdiness, because you do really seem to own it. Oh, I don't think I had a choice. Like, I have been... First of all, I know that there's, like, a nerd sexy thing going on right now in general. And obviously being a nerd is the whole idea of it so kind of mainstream. And there are all these ideas about what it is. And I just felt... I was just an old-fashioned nerd, you know? Like, I was made fun of a lot. I've been Mm. wearing glasses since I was, like, who knows how small... I wore suspenders unironically. Ooh. Like I you know, I was 
I was just like a goofy kid with few friends. And to me, that was kind of what being a nerd was. Like now that there's this whole, you know, there there are things to do in a culture around it. Like I didn't have hobbies to protect me. I was just a loser. So I've been that for so long. And I think now all of a sudden I have a job where I'm essentially rewarded for it. Um, and so, yeah, then everyone's now when you say nerd fail, it's very low stakes, right? It's not such a big deal. Right. No, it's the coolest. You mentioned you didn't have hobbies. Were there things you nerded out about as a kid or was it really just kind of being lonesome? Yeah, I was just a dork. I mean, I read a lot of books, right? That's what yeah. we do. Like I read a mm -hmm. lot of just whatever I could get my hands on. I couldn't when I was young, my family, we couldn't necessarily afford books. So I spent a lot of time in the public libraries in the towns where I lived, like a lot, like where the librarians know you, but you still don't work there. You know, <laughs> like you're just there all the time. Um, and they were my babysitter sometimes. So, uh, I just kind of was there kind of reading everything I could get my hands on. I don't know what would be considered nerdy. I mean, I definitely like science fiction, but whenever you say that, then people like list 15 science fiction titles that you should have read. And you're like, oh, I, I'm not that like. I'm not even good at that part of being a nerd. <laughs> you know, I've, I played video games, but like just a few, you know, like I basically am even too nerdy to be a proper nerd. I can totally relate to what you're saying. I read a lot as a kid, too. And I still tell people that, like, my main source of pop culture information is Morning Edition. My condolences. Which is, like, maybe a little problematic for being a 20-something. <laughs> yeah, but... We need to talk about that on a different <laughs> level. But, yeah, more on that later. We interviewed Chris Cluey fairly recently. Oh, I know. Heartbreaker. I'm with you. Amazing. But one dude. thing he talked about was the fact that his parents like made him go play outside because otherwise he would have just stayed inside and read and played video games all the time. And I, I think it brings up an interesting element of like the extent to which your parents are involved in either facilitating the social acceptability of your nerdiness or trying to alter it somehow. And I was just wondering how your parents reacted to you hanging out in the library. They made me play sports. They did. Yeah. There was a lot of sports playing and, um, you know, very once we moved out of the city, their whole rationale was like, this is why we moved to the suburbs, damn it. <laughs> like, now you must play baseball like we saw it in a Rockwell picture. Like, I have no idea. My parents are immigrants. So they were like, you're going to go out and play all the sports and do all the things. <laughs> and I became a kid who like was in a million clubs, but still would be like alone at the lunch table. I mean, I even did like drama club and chorus and like, I can't sing I can barely function, <laughs> much less mimic the ideas and emotions of another person, right? Like, uh, drama <laughs> makes no sense. Definitely was in marching band, because that's, like, required Ooh, to be a nerdiness. That's a really good one. Even though I was terrible at the instruments I played. <laughs> Doesn't matter. So they basically just encouraged me to, to participate in a lot of social things. And I think that also, when I look back, makes me feel like... That was that was hugely helpful because now I feel like I can walk into a room and talk to just about anyone, mm -hmm. even when I don't feel like I belong there, which I very rarely do. And I think it comes from those experiences of constantly being thrust into some new social setting where there are cliques that exist that you don't have a chance in hell of being a part of. But you you find a way to be yourself and to be, you know, um, be content in, in those places. There's an editor at BEZ, actually, who has a granddaughter who's, you know, starting to get in that really fun reading age 
where she can start to read some of the young adult stuff. But this woman is really concerned because she thinks that so many of the really popular young adult novels these days are, you know, sort of Hunger Games style, like the world is about to end and it's just you (laughs) fighting for your own survival. And, you know, that's a really intense contrast from books like Judy Bloom, you know, which are so much more about they're about survival in a really different way, you know, and about like your own personal essence and how you can deal with those really intense things just about being an adolescent, yeah. let alone when the world is ending. I know. You know, I wouldn't be so hard on the modern genres for that kind of disaster stuff because all of these books at their heart are the same in that they're about a young person trying to, to make their way in what feels like chaos. And, you know, whether you are kind of Nancy Drew or, you know, Katniss Everdeen or whatever, you're just trying to make sense of the world around you. And what's really important is is that inner voice and the inner life that the author is presenting. Are they presenting a, a thoughtful person who, like, may make mistakes but is fundamentally trying to be good and trying to work things out and... And is identifying what is a mistake, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's a huge part of it is figuring out, like, oh, should I have treated this person this way? Or, like, what is betrayal? Like, to me, it doesn't really matter, you know, if you do that at Sweet Valley High or you do that in The Hunger Games. Like, it, what matters is just that that, that process happens. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that we, our parents got fired up about the books that we were reading, right? That seemed <laughs> a little too adult. And um, I'm sure there are parents like feeling the same way today. Um, but I don't think that kids are dealing with like worse stuff, you know? It's just like coming at them in different formats and that sort of thing. But the problems are fundamentally the same. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Also because, you know, like you're saying, in terms of the chaos, often it does seem like life or death, even if it isn't, you know? Yeah, it's very high stakes. I think one of the great nerd experiences you have, especially as a female nerd, is the first time that you get just totally, not just rejected by a guy, but like later made fun of by him in public, right? Like just totally. Yeah. I mean, not, not even if you, like, I'm not saying you've done anything, right? It's the worst thing, which is you haven't done anything at all. But in the weird kind of social hierarchy of like the seventh or eighth grade, you are like persona non grata all of a sudden. Right. And that feeling after you've had the bliss of elementary school, right, where everybody's forced to play with everyone else. And, you know, uh, it's like everything is copacetic because it's the order has been imposed on you. That lack of order feels very disorienting Mm -hmm. and irrational and crazy and upsetting and high stakes, Yep, you know, and it doesn't matter that like none of it matters (laughs) (laughs) and that in a month, you know, you won't care about that guy at all or he'll be trying to date you or in 10 or 15 years you'll be going to some like high school reunion and you won't even remember his last name at the moment it's hunger games yep it's like i've just been stabbed in the back in front of a (laughs) cheering crowd you know like (laughs) it just seems so unbelievable and um maybe that's what these kinds of books are capturing as well, you know, that that kind of 
that sense of 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 awe of like what is happening you know (laughs) the world is ending it just makes it literal basically right everything is broken right everything is broken and I'm a big fan also of like end of the world type things I like everyone else I'm like zombies love it I can't get enough of like walking dead or whatever like That's where I want my allegory. Well, I think it comes back to the stakes being so high. I mean, that is, I find that really compelling too, you know? And even Walking Dead, I personally am not super excited about zombies. However, it's a really compelling survival story. Yeah, that's a huge, huge part of all that. Thanks to Audie Cornish, who you can hear hosting NPR's All Things Considered. And tweeting her nerd fails and successes at NPR Audie. Okay, cocktails before homework? Of course. Trisha, I wish we had been friends in junior high. Well, I was friends in junior high with our booze nerd, Rebecca Polson. Rebecca, you're still working your way through the first season of Orange is the New Black, right? I am, but I'm not binge watching like I did House of Cards. I've usually watched like two or three at a time, so I still have four episodes left, so you can't spoil me. Okay, okay, no spoilers. But I was only like halfway through the second episode when I thought that the Red character would make a really interesting cocktail inspiration. Yes, Red the crazy lady who runs the prison kitchen. Red has that great kind of wine, kind of boozy colored hair. And she's very nurturing, even though she's got a lot of tough love. You know, there's definitely a bittersweet quality to her. The flashbacks of Red crack me up. But this is partly her origin story and partly yours, right? My favorite part of Orange is the New Black is the backstories. I like predicting, like, whose story we're going to get in the next episode. And backstory is also one of my favorite parts of culinary culture. Because I think we underestimate how much the experiences we have with food and beverage as children really really shape like what we like to eat as adults. I feel a Vago Red Pop story coming on. I remember like very specifically being somewhere between eight or ten years old and being in my mom's van and telling her that I could never leave Michigan because I couldn't live anywhere that didn't have Vago Red Pop. And this was like a sad thing for me. I was like, well, I wanted to see the world, but I just can't abandon Red Pop. Wait, you can only get Red Pop in Michigan? I had no idea. It's like very Midwest-centric, so I haven't been able to find it out here on the East Coast. Rebecca, Red Pop does not sound like the makings of a classy cocktail. And you once gave me guff about drinking white wine. Is this a Red Pop cocktail? No, okay, I didn't, I didn't actually make a cocktail out of Red Pop. It's just, it's more Red Pop inspired. Although I do maintain that Red Pop is extremely classy. Okay, so what is in the cocktail? The cocktail I made today is kind of a boozy, grown-up play on Red Pop. But I went way geek with this one. I tried out a method of fruit preservation from colonial times, and I made a shrub. Hang on, shrubs? Like... We want... A shrubbery! It's not a shrubbery. It's just a shrub, which is a kind of dry, fruity mixture. It's made from fruit, sugar, and vinegar, and it's actually non-alcoholic. So sort of like a pickled fruit? Yeah, it's kind of like a pickled fruit, but usually you let the vinegar mellow a little bit, so it's not super briny. And it's also really practical because it actually was a method of fruit preservation, And I've decided that, like, buying an appropriate amount of produce must be a skill that you develop after 30, because I'm, like, physically incapable of not buying all the great summer fruit that's in the markets right now. 
This is a way to keep it from going bad in your fridge. Shrubs will keep for a really long time. What kind of fruit do we need for a shrub? The riper your fruit is, if it's, you know, getting a little bit mushy and you don't really want to, like, bite into it, that's actually fruit that's going to make a fantastic shrub. Because as fruit ages, the sugars develop even more, so it's going to have a lot of rich sweetness. And actually a really great way to go about doing this is to just go to the farmer's market and ask people for their seconds. The fruit that's a little bit bruised or whatever and would normally, you know, just get returned to the farm and go into compost, they might sell that to you at a discounted price. Okay, trashy fruit for a prison cocktail. Gotcha. I used cherries, strawberries balsamic vinegar, a and a little bit of apple cider vinegar. So we put all that fruit and vinegar in a jar and let it stew for at least a day, right? And then we're going to strain the syrup to its goodness. Then what? And it's like that Clairol hair dye that Red probably uses. Like, a little bit goes a long way. Usually I find, like, a half an ounce is pretty sufficient. And, of course, you can use it to make this week's cocktail, which is our Red Pop Mule, which is a play on the classic Moscow Mule. Okay, shrub, some vodka... How do we assemble this bad boy? I like to build this in a cocktail shaker just to chill the vodka and shrub mix a little bit. But you can also, you know, like, it's a pretty low-maintenance drink. You can just build it right in the glass if you want. And you're just going to use a half an ounce of our super-saturated cherry berry balsamic shrub. Then you're going to add two ounces of vodka. It's very Russian, and it's really great to showcase these really intense flavors that we're using and just give them, like, a little bit of a boozy kick. This is when I give it, like, a little, you know, like a 30-40 second shake over ice just to get everything mixed and frothy and a little bit chilled. And then you're going to pour that into a Collins glass with ice in it. And then you just top it with Gosling's ginger beer, and you're, like, ready to enjoy Find the full recipe at nerdatpodcast.com. I think we should thank Rebecca for her boozy inventiveness. We need to give a gold star to our listeners who did last week's homework and called in with their hopes, fears, and predictions about the final season of Breaking Bad. Hi, Greta and Trisha. My name's Ina. Um, Breaking Bad. I'm really glad that Walt has gone off the deep end. Like, I just feel like that's been coming for a while. I don't know. I don't know if he, I think he's going to die, but probably from cancer. Um, I don't know if Hank's actually going to pursue the whole wall thing. I don't know. See, that's the thing. Like, all these things I want or expect to happen, I've learned just not to want or expect them because they're probably not going to. Have a good one. Bye. Hi, Greta and Trisha. This is Carl Brands. Um, I think this is a great question about Walter White. I'm very conflicted after spending so much time with him. Um, I'm normally an optimist and would like to have him redeem himself by, like, saving a truckload of kittens. But um, I think he's got to go down at this point. It's just who he takes with him and what the final results are. I did my homework. Hey, Trisha. Hey, Greta. This is Hannah Poulton, and I'm just here to turn in my homework for the day. So, Breaking Bad, I definitely got a late start to that show, as in I just finished the last four episodes literally two minutes ago. And I really wished I had, like, started watching it earlier, because, honestly, if I'd been watching it in high school, maybe I'd become, like, a chem major and have, like, on my way to starting a meth lab, or maybe at least, like, start an explosive business. 
Probably not, but let's be honest. Breaking Bad is like a better, more effective version of what Bill Nye tries to do. Anyway, so I ha- I like I just stopped watching it, so I'm still reeling about the fact that Mike has been murdered and like nine people were stabbed to death. Um, but my hopes and my dreams for this season is really first and foremost that Skylar dies because she's like the most obnoxious character on that show. Um, her cry for help was walking into a pool and swimming around for a while. I'm sorry. That's a bit ridiculous. And then Walter, I think Walter should end up in jail, not dead, because I just, I feel like he'd really excel there. Like, he could start his own empire within the jail, and I think that'd just be great. Well, that was my homework. Hopefully I got an A. Bye. Thanks to everyone who called in. You can call us anytime to give us homework. Or give us what burn. Oh, you live in the South now, huh, Greta? Sure do. <laughs> Call and leave us a voicemail at 312-600-5638. I, for one, think Walt has to die. And I think it will be the cancer. It's the one thing he's powerless in the face of, no matter how in control he is, in other ways. I'm a little more ambivalent about what has to happen to Walt. To be honest, I'm still hoping he can redeem himself, even though I feel like I should know better. I also thought the first half of season five was pretty slow, but I'm hoping all that buildup, especially in the tense relationships, will have a bombastic blowout. I hope this season spends more time in the point of view of Hank. I think it's so much more interesting to watch the in-over-their-head characters like Hank and Jesse navigate Walt, the psychopath, than it is to watch Walt just be a psychopath. I'm bored with psychopaths. Does that include Dexter? Oh man, yes. That show went round the bend a few seasons back. Basically, everything after John Lithgow has just been a waste. American television just doesn't know when to turn the lights off, you know? Yeah, if this show had been on the BBC, it probably would have run two or three really good seasons. Dexter would have been caught or killed, and that would be that. But you're bitter ending it with me on this show, yeah? Yeah, I'm still watching, against my better judgment. See, I do think watching Dexter's sister Deb finally freak out and deal with things has been interesting this season. The show led up to this for so long that I'm glad it's finally being addressed. I'll give you that. Deb is more interesting this season. Just like the only interesting parts left in Breaking Bad are watching Hank and Jesse. But why is it still happening? I don't know. It's the inner monologue that really makes Dexter so tough to take for me. And like, I get that we needed this monologue in the early seasons because that was how we got to know a lot of Dexter's code and that he wasn't a total monster. But at this point, it's really just tacky. Can you imagine if we had to listen to the inside of Walter White's brain? Would that make him as annoying as Dexter? I think it would probably just be him saying, I am Heisenberg, over and over. So yeah, that would be really terrible. Okay, it's time for homework. You first, Greta. Well, my homework is actually cribbed off Audie Cornish. She gave us a list of BBC shows she loves, most of which involve the high-stakes survivalism that she talked about. I think these instructions will be best heeded if they're in Audie's own voice. I'm going to send you to UK television. I'm going to say, get online onto like Hulu or iTunes or your thing of choice. And I'm going to go with misfits in the flesh and being human. Because they're all, they're all programs that like, I feel like fundamentally have a good kind of nerd message about acceptance and that kind of thing. And also just watch early episodes. Like don't go into the seasons fives and six and things like that, which are like, you know, get problematic fairly quickly, right? I mean, let's face it, all TV shows, I feel like the first two seasons are really where, where the show is good. And then after that, you're just complaining about it. So that is a good kind of summer TV homework, I think. 
Now that I'm done with Orange is the New Black, I needed some new shows to binge on, so this is a great list. And Trisha, I'm really proud of you for making it all the way to homework without having a Doctor Who excitement outburst. (gasps) New Doctor! New Doctor! And here we are. So you're excited about Peter Capaldi as the new Doctor? Would it have been interesting to see a female Doctor? Yes. Or a minority of some kind? Of course. But this show is leaps and bounds ahead of the way many others portray things like race and gender. And it's not Doctor Who's job to fix everything that's wrong with TV. Right. It's to give us a good show. And as the new Doctor, Peter Capaldi, I'm sure, is going to give us a good show. I think so, too. He's perfectly scrappy and silly and brutally smart. Yes. He was one of the many wonderful things about the BBC show The Hour last year. He was also in Torchwood and Skins, which are some of my favorites. And you know what? I like that he's old. Not old, old, but much older than Matt Smith. True. Capaldi is 55. Only the very first Doctor, William Hartnell, was older. Capaldi is Scottish and best known in the UK for his role in the political workplace comedy In the Thick of It. Which has been in my queue for a while, but has now moved to the top. I'm making it this week's homework. Let's all watch, or re-watch, In the Thick of It, in honor of Peter Capaldi being named the next Doctor. If you're a newbie Whovian who is still tormented about losing Matt Smith, I feel you. But this is what Doctor Who does to you, man. We've been through it before. I'm still getting over Tennant. And we'll go through it again. Because it's like life. That's almost what I was going to say, Greta. What? Doctor Who isn't like life. It is life. Okay, that's it for today. You can find links to all your homework and assign us some at nerdatpodcast.com. Thanks again to Audie Cornish and Rebecca Polson. And to everyone who called in. Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Throw us a few stars if you're feeling generous. BJ Lederman did not compose our theme. But Greta met him last week, and he was wearing a tie-dye poncho. So, there's that. This is Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.